growing up, uh, I was born in Dallas, and then we moved, um, I think it's about my fifth grade year down to Houston, and then we lived in Houston uh, until I went up to college. Um, but in the midst of that, I like to watch sports, and I was a Dallas Cowboys fan, still am. Uh, I was a Houston Astros fan, still am. They won the World Series last night on a monster home run. It was amazing, 450 feet. It was incredible to watch. Uh, I'm not, I mean, <laughs> I mention that because it, it's exciting to cheer for a team that wins uh, and that can win championships uh, because I've been a Cowboys fan for so long, and that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> um, but I, I did cheer for the, for the Texas Rangers for a while, and I can distinctly remember going to some of their baseball games at the old Ranger Stadium, before they're at the one they're at now. And I remember one game in particular, seeing Nolan Ryan pitch. And even it was his final season, even at the age he was, still bringing heat the way he did. Uh, but recently I learned quite a bit about him that I was unfamiliar with. He's always been a heat thrower, Nolan Ryan, the pitcher. He threw, even threw hard in high school. But he was a wild pitcher. There's one particular game he threw... And he hit the first batter in the head, cracked the helmet. He hit the next batter in the arm, broke his arm. The third batter went and asked, asked the coach for a pinch hitter. <laughs> um, but he was wild all through high school. He got picked up by the Mets, and he was wild even for the Mets. They wanted him because he, he could throw hard. And they, they brought down the technology they had at the time, trying to gauge how fast he threw, and uh, they discovered sometime later how flawed their, their technology was, and, re and using, you know, today's technology, rating what it did back then, and, and uh, using math to figure out the difference, he was throwing at 108.1 miles an hour, very fast. Um, the batters would say his, his fastball made a sound flying through the air, like a, like a whistle, it said it scared us out of our minds. Um, and, uh, uh, but what I didn't know about Nolan Ryan, and being such a huge fan, I had a huge poster of him in my room growing up. Um, and uh, my boys have that poster now. But his first few years playing for the Mets, he didn't have much control. And so when he would throw the ball pitch, his whole body would come off of the pitcher's mound because he didn't know how to control himself very well. He would just throw it hard, the ball would go wild, but it would go really fast, how, wherever it went, and his whole body would come off the mound. And the Mets didn't know what to do with him. And he really wanted to quit. Yeah, he'd been there for a, some months, a year, two years. He wanted to quit because he knew they didn't know what to do with him. He told his wife one day, the next phone call we get from them, they're going to fire me. And uh, they're either going to just cut me outright, or they're going to call and say, we traded you. And he waited and waited by the phone. It was off season. And the call finally came. And when the call came, we traded you um, to the Angels out in California. He told his wife that he just wanted to quit. He said, I just want to go back. I want to farm. You know, I'm a farmer. I just want to go back into my farmland and let's just raise cows. Because uh, he wanted to study some more to be a vet. That was his lifelong goal was to be a vet. And uh, his wife told him, no. You are not quitting this. God has given you an ability, a skill, 
that you need to hone, and you're not quitting on it. I'm not letting you, she said. So he took the call from the angels, and he went out there to pitch, and they gave him something he'd never had in his life, a pitching coach. And he went to pitch, throwing himself off of the mound. The pitching coach, if, he's, if Nolan Ryan's standing here, the pitching coach would stand right here and say, all right, pitch, and don't hit me. And it took him weeks and months of hitting, repeatedly hitting that pitching coach with his body to finally figure out a rhythm. And he threw his first no-hitter there. And 60 days later, he threw his second no-hitter. Just 60 days later. And uh, he became the legend that he is. Um, ended up throwing seven no-hitters. Uh, 5,700 some odd uh, strikeouts. Uh, he's the, second, the guy who's thrown the second most strikeouts, Randy Johnson, said, I'm second on the list of strikeouts, and he's a 1,000 strikeouts ahead of me. Uh, some of his records will never be touched. But he wanted to quit, and the only reason he stayed was because the person he told, or that he turned to encouraged him to stick with what God gave him. And what we're going to look today is that when things get difficult and things get hard and things get bad, who we turn to will determine whether or not we make it through it. So turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to 1 Kings chapter 20. Uh, you can use the Bible there on the pew rack in front of you. It's on page 302. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, please take that Bible home. Everybody needs a Bible. Just take it home. We've got some other ones. We can replace that one with. The Bibles are there for you to have. So page 302, 1 Kings chapter 20. Now what's happening here in 1 Kings is, uh, I don't know if you remember, a couple weeks ago we talked about 1 Kings and Elijah um, calling down fire from heaven, praying that rain would come, and then he went off extremely discouraged, uh, and then God came to him and brought him back. Well, the king that he was running from, the king who had led the entire nation astray was a man named Ahab. And the scripture says that Ahab was the most evil king Israel had ever had that he did more evil than any other king had ever done. That's a pretty bad description. Yeah? Well, we're going to see here in 1 Kings chapter 20, even though that was Ahab's description, he wasn't always that way. That just because he did a lot of evil and, and he led a lot of people to do evil, that doesn't mean he never turned to the Lord. 1 Kings chapter 20, what ends up happening is the king, well, let's, let's just look at verse 1, and then I'll sum up some stuff for you. It says, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses, and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. Now, Israel, Samaria was Israel's capital city. And so you've got Syria nearby, and their king, Ben-Hadad, he gathers up an alliance of kings, 32 in all. And they bring their massive army, we're going to find out later, it's over 100,000 warriors. They bring their army in chariots and, and, and cavalry, and they go down there to the capital of Israel, and they, they besiege it. And he sends ultimatums in there to the king of Israel uh, and says, I want you to give up all your money, all your gold, all your silver, send out the wives of everybody in town, send out the kids of everybody in town, and only then will I let you live. And the men around uh, the king of Israel, Ahab, said, yeah, don't do that. Ah, we're, we're not giving in to this. 
And as they're looking out, and all, they don't see any hills outside their city. All they see is enemy soldiers, 100,000 plus surrounding their town. And so a prophet comes and says to um, Ahab, it's good that you didn't give up. Because look down at verse 13. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you will know that I am the Lord. So he gets confirmation from God. Even though you see 100,000 plus warriors out here, this army, it's not over for you. You're not done. That's way more than you have in your town, not just fighters yourself, but this 32 uh, uh, enemy alliance against you with all of their soldiers will not defeat you because I am with you, what God is telling him. Look at verse uh, 14. And Ahab says, by whom? They're saying, who is going to lead the group into battle? And the prophet says, thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the, di- of the districts. And he said, no, you're missing my question. He says, who shall begin the battle? And the prophet answers, you. <laughs> See, a lot of times the king would lead the battle, lead the charge in some instances, uh, but that was not always the case. Uh, sometimes they would stand at the back and, and send the men out so they wouldn't, you know, get hurt. And so Ahab, you know, a man we've seen who does not follow the Lord really ever, is now listening to God. He's listening to God at this moment because, honestly, he's got no one else to turn to. His gods that he had been worshiping aren't real, and he knows it. And so he hears from the Lord and says, and the Lord tells him, you're going to win. And Ahab says, okay, I'm going to win. Great, our our army is going to win. Fantastic. But who's going to lead the charge? And the Lord tells him, the only way you're going to win is if you, King Ahab, evil King Ahab, the only way you're going to win is if you lead the charge into battle against the 100,000 plus army. I don't know about you, but I'd be thinking, yeah, I don't want to do that. (laughs) that. All All I can see, as far as I can see, is bad guys. And I don't want to lead this charge, Um, but Ahab does. Look at what he does here in verse 15. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. And after he had mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. So the army he's facing is 100,000 plus. And the biggest army that he can come up with is 7,000 people. 7,000 against more than 100,000. And Ahab is supposed to be right in dead center leading the charge out in the, into the field. But he doesn't hesitate. He's listening to the Lord. Verse 16. And they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths. That's tense. He and his, two, and his 32 kings who helped him. The servants of the governors of the districts went out first and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts. And they reported to, to him, men are coming out from Samaria. He says, and it's almost as though he's surprised. You know, he's got his 100,000-man army, and here comes these 7,000 men out of the town. And he says in verse 18, if they come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they come out for war, take them alive. He's very curious as to how in the world do they think they're going to win with 7,000 against my 100,000. Like, this is just crazy. And so he wants to capture as many as possible to question them, possibly torture them, possibly public execution. So he says, bring them in alive. 
Verse 19. So these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts, and the army that followed them. And each struck down his man, and the Syrians fled. And Israel pursued them, but Ben-Hadad of Syria escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. So the 7,000-man army almost completely obliterates the 100,000-man army. Not because they're more skilled than the other guys. The other guys are in chariots. The other guys are on horses. They win because the Lord is fighting for them that day. The Lord is protecting them. The Lord is guiding them in the midst of the battle. And the prophet comes to the king in the battle. Verse 22. The prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself, and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring, the king of Assyria will come up against you. So the prophet comes to evil king Ahab and says, You need to go and spend some time dedicated to the Lord and get ready because this isn't over. King of Syria escaped. You're not done with this fight. They've got a 32-king alliance out here. They're going to come back and, and fight again. And look, we're going to get a, a picture of what's happening in the inner sanctum of the king of Syria. Verse 23. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, the God, Their gods, speaking of the one true God, are gods of the hills. And so they were stronger than we. For let us fight against them in the plain, the valley. And surely we will be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings, each from his post, and put commanders, skilled generals, in their places. And muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse, chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. So the enemy doesn't think God is strong enough to take care of his people in the valley. Because the enemy thinks their equipment and their, their strategies and their weapons are more powerful in the valley. Meaning the valley is a darker place for the people of God. He says they only won because it was on the mountaintop. But let's fight them down in the valley and we're going to win. Fight them down in the valley and it's going to be over for them. Let's fight them down in the valley and we're stronger, more powerful than them. And they won't stand a chance this time. We're going to mow them over. What they're doing, really, the, the, the enemy here, the Syrian and his um, evil king alliance, they are misunderstanding and undervaluing the power of God. They're almost considering as though God's strength is limited by location and circumstance. And say God is only strong in, in this particular way, in this particular area. But if, if we come to this different area, this different place, these different circumstances, then he won't be as strong, won't be able to do what, what, what he did before. And honestly, there's a lot of Christians who think that way too. They won't admit it. Say, I've, I've seen God do some incredible things, but it's different now. Like, like, I know God delivered us and God provided finances and God did this, that, and the other thing, but it's different now. And, there, and then new worries and new anxieties creep in and, 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 and new fears that God won't deliver this time like he did last time. And I, I'm guilty of the same thing, of worrying in the moment that just because God did it before doesn't mean he's going to do it now. Doubting God's power, doubting God's strength. And then God still comes through and still does it, still delivers even sometimes when we have in the back of our mind that fear that he won't. That's what the Syrian alliance is doing. They're saying God cannot do it because it's different here. 
God cannot do it because it's, it's too much. It's, it's, it's too hard. It's too difficult in this situation. But we know in Scripture, actually, Jeremiah 32, 17 says, nothing is too hard for you. Luke 1, 37, nothing will be impossible with God. And you know in the Greek what that word nothing means? Nothing. Absolutely no things will be impossible with God. None of them. The thing you think is impossible, it's not impossible with God there with you. Nothing will be impossible with God. There's no situation that's too tough. No matter how deep the valley, no matter how big the enemy, no matter how dark the night, God is still there, and he can see in the dark. Flip over to Psalm 139 real quick. Keep your finger there in, in 1 Kings. We're going to come back. But Psalm 139, this is David writing. David had many dark days, many valley situations. Look at what David writes in Psalm 139. It's on page 521 if you're using the Bible in the pew rack. David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. David is saying, God, you know everything about me. You know all of me. Even, even things that I'm thinking in my head before they come out of my mouth, you know what's there because you know my mind. You know everything. You protect me behind and before. You, I, I can't even contemplate everything that you know. It's too wonderful for me. It's beyond me. Look at what he says in verse eight, uh, 7. He says, God, where can I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. That's the valley situation. Surely darkness will cover me. It's too dark here. It's too difficult here. The light, even the light that I see, the hope that I see, it is pitch black and I can't see through it. And David writes, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. God sees and God knows. And the situations that we may see as hopeless, we may see as insurmountable, God can overcome it. God can conquer it. God can get us through it. That doesn't necessarily mean God's going to come down and grab us and yank us out of the situation. Nine times out of ten, my experience is, no, God's not going to do that. But he is going to be with you through it. No matter how bad it gets, how overwhelming the enemy is, like 100,000 against 7,000, no matter how impossible the situation seems, he's going to walk with you through it. You may not be able to see it because it's too dark for you to see, but it's not too dark for him to see. He can still walk it. He can still overcome it. He can still do whatever he's going to do because he, because he is God. He cannot be stopped. And so back to 1 Kings, 
Remember, the enemy thinks we can overcome God. We can overcome the God of these people. We can think more than they can rely on their God. We can do more. We can have a bigger army than what their God can do. Their God just must be God of the mountaintops, God of the hills. He's not God of the valleys. We, the enemy, are stronger than God's people down here in the valley. It's going to be too dark for them down here in the valley. That We, we can overwhelm them down here in the valley. Look at what happens. Verse 26. So in the spring, when God said it was going to happen, Ben-Hadad, the, the king of Syria, mustered the, the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Syri Syrians filled the country. Y'all remember how many, pe how many people are in the Israelite army? 7,000. And we're going to find out in a minute, this is the, the Syrians have at least 127,000. That's a lot of guys against 7,000. They said, we're looking at, 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 at the enemy, and they fill the hills right across the valley. They just, I mean, it's just massive. And here's Ahab with his little group of 7,000. He says, we just feel like little tiny goats down here compared to their massive army. I, I imagine every one of their eyeballs are huge, just staring out at this big thing. And they're thinking, okay, God said he's going to do it. <laughs> let's, let's, uh, let's just see how this works out for us down here, because they're going to fight, and where they're going to fight and meet is the valley. Remember, they fought in the hills before, and the Syrians had chariots, and they had horses, and it was hard for the chariots and horses to, to maneuver in the hills. That's why they think they're, they're more powerful in the valley. But they're not the only ones who can see that. The Israelite, the 7,000, they can see that too. This seems like a lot easier land for those chariots and horses to get around in. Let's just let's climb the mountain and let them come to us up in the hills. But that's not what God wants for them to do. God wants for them to fight down there in the valley. God wants them to fight down there in the valley where it's overwhelming, where it's difficult, where it's seemingly impossible. Every military strategist would say, yeah, no, you cut and run today. Like, you, you, you leave so you can fight another day. This one is, you're not going to win this one. But they're not listening to all that other stuff. Uh, verse 28, and a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, the Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hands, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. So they're staring at each other for seven days. No fighting, just staring there. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined. And the people of Israel struck down of the, of the Syrians 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. 7,000 killed 100,000 in one day. Just boom, gone. And so the guys who were left, verse 30, and the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Israel would not have had the technology to knock down a wall like this. Walls back then were massive, walls around cities. I mean, we're talking feet thick walls, deep foundations. 
the wall fell down, similar to another wall that fell down in Scripture. They didn't knock down because of the technology of the Israelites, but because God did it at Jericho. God did it here and, and wiped out 27,000 just from the crumbling of the wall. And so that day, 127,000 of the enemy fall. Not because Israel is powerful and skilled and genius at what they do. Ahab was no military genius. They did this because God was with them. God was fighting with them. God was fighting for them. Everything they did was right that day because God was with them. If they had chosen another strategy, if they had chosen another path, God would not have been with them and they would have lost. But they found victory because they walked where God wanted them to go. They, they did what God wanted them to do. And their leader, this evil king, listened to the Lord. You know what's phenomenal about that? Even though we know how evil he is, that doesn't mean God left him alone. God still came to him, and God rescued him. And so there's no amount of evil you can do that means God won't leave you alone. As long as you're still here, he's still got something for you, and he's going to come after you and give you opportunity, give you chances to turn to him. And so he comes, and he protects Ahab, and Ahab listens to the Lord that day. And finds phenomenal victory there. You see, the enemy had thought, mistakenly believed, that God could only show up when the circumstances were just right. That their God, the God of, of, of the Israelites, the, the, the God of God's people would only show up if the circumstances were, were perfect. And so when things became less than favorable for God's people... They thought, the enemy thought, that that would put God's people at a disadvantage, at a massive disadvantage. But what they did not understand is that an apparent disadvantage only gives God more room to work. An apparent disadvantage in your life only gives God more room to work. This is a true principle all throughout Scripture. Think about Little David, teenager, fighting Goliath, a skilled warrior. God had plenty of room to work. Think about Daniel in the lion's den. It's impossible to overpower a lion. I don't know if you've ever tried without the power of God. That disadvantage allowed God to have room to work. Any apparent disadvantage in your life only gives God more elbow room to do stuff in your life. Sometimes what that means is, the picture of that is releasing control and saying, I'm trying to wrestle control from the Lord and control whatever this situation is and not giving him enough room to work in my life. And that may mean you've got to give something up and say, okay, I'm just going to let God take care of this, even though I've tried to control it, I've, I've tried to overpower it, I've tried to, tried, to, tried to manhandle this situation to be what I want it to be. And God says, no, just let me take care of it. Let me do with it as I will, and I'll take care of it. You know, in, in Judges chapter 7, God actually tells Gideon, you are not in as much of a disadvantage to find victory. God tells Gideon, you need to be at more of a disadvantage in order for, for victory to be found today. And so he puts him at more of a disadvantage. Gideon listens to the Lord in the same way Ahab listened to the Lord here a disadvantage, a struggle, overwhelming odds are not 
a defeat. They're an opportunity. Always. They're an opportunity for God to do something. God to do something for either in you or through you, or sometimes both, to accomplish something phenomenal. Either something you're going to see, like phenomenal victory like Ahab had that day, or he's going to do a work in you, setting you up for something that's coming in preparation. He's tilling the soil because the fruit of the harvest is coming, preparing you for something down the road. Either way, it's to his benefit. Listening to the Lord, following the Lord, allowing that disadvantage, that apparent disadvantage to be there so God can work within you. There's that great old gospel song that says, little is much when God is in it. You can Google that one later. Either Gaither Vocal Band or the Cathedrals. You'll find it both ways on YouTube. Little is much when God is in it. God can do much with little. God can bring the super to your natural and make it supernatural, but you've got to bring it to him and let him do it. Let him take the disadvantage and do something incredible. So how do we deal with our low points, with our valleys? How do we deal with with what's coming that seems impossible, it seems overwhelming, it seems like this is never going to come out. We are not going to find victory here. This is the end of everything I thought was possible. What you all you need to do at that moment is give God more room to work. Give God more room to work. And let him handle it. Let him take care of it. He's the expert. He's the one who can see in the dark. He's the one who's got all the power. He's the one who can take you through the mess and the storm and the difficulty and the pain and the trial and the struggle. He's the only one who can do it. And so you allow him to do the work. And you're going to see something you've never seen before. You're going to experience something you've never experienced before. And you're going to come through the storm in a far more powerful position. Because you're working with the Lord. Not wrestling with him, trying to keep control for yourself. You're working with him because you're following him. Following him. And you may say, man, you don't know what I've done, preacher man. You don't know, you know, even last night I was doing this thing and saying this thing and drinking this thing and smoking this thing. You don't know where I've been. The thing I said to my kid this morning on the way to church and it came out of my mouth and I thought, oh man, I am just, I'm going into church and I'm saying this stuff. You're still here. You got to hear me. You're still here. God's still going to use you. I've said it many times. God does not have a never to be used again shelf that when you do something, oh, cut them off and put them on the shelf and I'm done with them. God's not somebody who writes people off. He uses people continually until you're gone and you're done. And you're not done until you're gone. He's still got a purpose for you. He's still got a job for you. He used Ahab, who in Ahab's introduction to the world was this man was more evil than everybody else. He used David, the murderer and adulterer, who repented and turned back to the Lord. And the description of David is, he's a man after God's own heart who did the will of the Lord in his generation. Moses, murderer, God used him. Abraham was a liar who disobeyed God repeatedly, and we have descriptions of that. But the Lord used him. Why? Because he repented and turned back to the Lord and allowed the Lord to use him. You don't have to be perfect to be used by God. Because if you did, none of us would be used by God. None of us are perfect. And I'm at the top of the list. 
None of us are perfect at all. But God chooses to use imperfect people to accomplish his perfect will if we're willing to follow it. So how much room is there in your life right now for God to work? How much room is in your life right now for God to work? If you were to list out everything you do in a week, just this past week, seven days, if you were to list out everything you did, every, every single thing, opened my eyes, got out of bed, walked in the kitchen, got the coffee, if you listed out all of it, how much room would there be in that list for God to work in you? Or would the majority of that list be things you control rather than things he controls? Listening to you rather than listening to him. How much room is there in your life for him to work right now? That doesn't mean, hey, you know what, I'm just not going to make coffee in the morning and see if God does it. No. God give, gave you, you know, a brain and feet and hands to be able to make the coffee, and hopefully you make it right and good. Uh, otherwise, I'm not going to drink your coffee. But the Lord can, can take care of us, and he provides so much for us to accomplish. But do we depend on him throughout the day? Do we allow him to move through us, or are we just already set on what we're going to accomplish that we don't observe the interruptions? You know, Scripture tells us about Jesus at the end of the book of John, that Jesus did so many things in the couple years of his ministry that if every single one of them were written down, there wouldn't be enough room in the world for the books to contain them all. But you know what's so unique about Jesus that is not that we do not emulate very well, at least I don't. He embraced the interruptions. If there was ever someone on the planet who had something to get done, like it was a must-do on the to-do list, it was Jesus dying and raising from the dead. That's something, you know, you don't compromise on that one. That one's got to get finished. But even on his journey to Jerusalem to die and raise from the dead, he allowed himself to be interrupted over and over and over again. Because he knew all those interruptions were people who needed salvation. How much room is there in your life for the Lord to work? How much? How much room do you allow for the Lord to change you and move you and speak to you? Maybe today you need the Lord to do a work in your life. You may feel like you're Ahab and you're facing a mountain of 100,000 soldiers. And you don't know what to do, and you're caught up in the moment, and you feel overwhelmed. You feel like you don't know what to do. Like there's no way through it, and it, you, you, you feel as though the thing you are facing might be too much. You know, we're going to do this. Hang on. We're going to do it like this, okay? If you feel like what you're going through, the situation you might be in, is massive and overwhelming, and it causes great anxiety and stress and difficulty, and it consumes your thoughts, and it feels like you're constantly being beat up internally by this thing, I want you to raise your hand. I'm going to pray for you. If you feel like you're facing an overwhelming enemy or overwhelming odds or, or phenomenal difficulty, raise your hand. You don't have to raise it high. I see some of you going like this. That's fine. Just, I just want to see you. I just want to see you. That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's a good amount. I'm going to pray for you right now. Let's pray, and then I'll wrap up. 
God, I thank you for these who raised their hands. Some raised them high. Some raised them just above the pew. Some had tears in their eyes. And God, you know the things that they're facing. The, the, the actual things they're facing. The, the internal struggle that they're having. The pain and the difficulty and, and the anxiety and the worry and, and seemingly overwhelming odds, apparent disadvantage that they have in their lives as a result of whatever this is hanging over them. God, I pray that you would reach out to every one of them, even those who didn't raise their hand, but they had the thing in their lives and they were too scared to raise their hand because they felt somebody else in the room would know why they're raising their hand and they didn't want to do it. But God, I pray that you would reach out to everyone who's facing something. That is like the the army of Syria coming against them. And it feels unbeatable. It feels hopeless. They may think in the back of their minds, "I, I know God can get me through it. I just don't see it. I feel like I'm in the dark, in the valley, and I'm being beaten down over and over. feel abandoned and alone. God, I pray that you would bring a great reminder to every one of them that they are not alone. You are with them in the dark, and you can see in the dark. You are more powerful than any enemy that would come against them. You make them more than conquerors because of what you have placed in them in the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would provide the strength and the peace and the power and and the perseverance and the fortitude not to give up. And they would turn to you rather than turn to something else, some substance, some individual that would seek only to break them down rather than you who would build them up, mold them and shape them as you're continually doing with all of us. Provide the strength they need to weather the storm. Never under their own strength, but constantly relying on you as you walk through them because you never leave them or forsake them. You're always with us to the very end of the age. God, we thank you for that. Thank you for your love. In your name I pray. Amen. And so making room for God in your life Maybe today you need to make room for a saving work of God in your life. Maybe you've been thinking about believing in Jesus, following Jesus, and you haven't. You've been putting it off. I'll do it when time's right, when when things are better, when when I feel more like it, when I get my life, you know, in control, when I get my life under control, when when, when I'm, you know, doing better with with the way things are going. Well, that day's never going to come. It's like when people say, you know, when they first get married, we're not ready to have kids. We'll have kids when we're ready and we get things ready. You're never ready. It just comes. Like, it's just going to happen. Like, you're never ready to have kids. Uh, and so that day is never going to come. If you're having that argument of with God, I'm just going to put it off because I'm not ready. My life's not together yet. Well, the thing about Jesus is your life doesn't have to be together. Like, and that's just it, though. Your life is not together without him. And so when the enemy's whispering in your ear, you've got to get your life together, that's him, the enemy. That's not Jesus. Because the only one who can put your life together is Jesus. And so you need him. 
And so today, if you need to believe in Jesus, don't walk out of these doors. If you're watching online, don't click off this video until you believe in Jesus. That Jesus is God's son. That he died so all your sins would be forgiven. Even the ones that the enemy keeps reminding you of. Forgiven. And then he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. And if you want that salvation, if you want that security, that nothing you do tomorrow can undo what Jesus already did, then you simply have to believe in Jesus. And if you want to believe in Jesus today, I want to talk to you before you leave. I'll be standing right here at the front just a minute after I pray again. Jared, our other pastor, standing in the back. He, he will be in a minute. You can talk to him, blue shirt, and, and you can, we'll catch you going or coming. We'd love to talk to you about how to be saved and being saved. Maybe today you say, you know what? I saw Lonnie and Haley get baptized. I need to get baptized. You know, I, I need to demonstrate for the world I'm a follower of Jesus. And that's what baptism is. You know, I heard a preacher tell this story this morning. He said this little boy got saved, and they told him, now that you're saved, you know, you, you need to get baptized. The little boy didn't really know what that meant. They said, you need to go tell the preacher that you're saved, and you need to get baptized. And so the little boy goes, and he finds the preacher in the hallway at church, and he tells him, I got saved, and, and I need to advertise. <laughs> and really, that's what baptism is. You're advertising Jesus. You're telling people, I am a Christian. I am a follower. Baptism doesn't save you, but it shows that you are his. It demonstrates what happens in your life. Going underwater represents dying to sin in the old way. Coming out of water represents getting a brand new life in Jesus. Clean with him. And if you want to do that, we can do it. We can do it. We can do it today. We can do it next week. Water's still there. Is it warm, Jared? It's, it's very warm. We, we can do it today if you want to get baptized. You want to put your life in the church, join the church, we can do that. We've got the decision cards down here. Um, maybe what you need to do is you need to come and pray. You need to come and pray for your own life that you can make room for God to work. Maybe there's something he's already put in your mind or there's something you need to let go of to make room for him to work. And your internal struggle, you're not wanting to do it. You need to come and pray and say, God, I'm giving it to you. Like I'm going to give it up. I'm going to let you have your way with this deal. Or maybe there's a family member or friend who you know, maybe you're going to see them in a few weeks of Thanksgiving. You know they're really struggling with making room for Jesus, with making room for him to work. And you need to come and you need to drop on your knees and you need to beg for God to move in their life. Maybe that's you. Maybe somebody's going to come and they're going to pray for you making room for him in your life. Whatever your decision is today, don't argue with God about it. Just do it.